Hello, greetings. Thank you to everyone for joining this event today on climate justice and the role of international law. My name is Emily Wilkinson. I'm a senior research fellow at ODI and head of the Resilient and Sustainable Islands Initiative, RESI. We are very excited um, to have you all with us and a fantastic agenda and speakers. Um, and a reminder that we have simultaneous translation in Spanish, so you can um, select that option. But first, let me hand straight over to Sara Pantoliano, ODI's Chief Executive, who will provide some introductory remarks. Over to you, Sara. Thank you very much, Emily, and uh, welcome everyone to this uh, online ODI event, Climate Justice and the Role of International Law. I think today's event comes at a very important time. The UN General Assembly will be voting shortly on a resolution led by the Pacific Island of Vanuatu, which is calling for an advisory opinion from the UN International Court of Justice, or ICJ, as it is called. If adopted, the resolution will ask the ICJ to clarify the obligations of states under international law to protect the climate system for present and future generations. But it will also clarify legal consequences for states that have caused significant harm to countries, to peoples, to individuals that are affected by climate change impacts. So I'm sure you all realize that this could be hugely important to advance climate justice. By clarifying state obligations in respect to climate change, this advisory opinion could help inform lawsuits around the world. It could potentially strengthen vulnerable countries' positions in international negotiations. So I think it's a really exciting time to be discussing the role of international law in climate justice. At ODI, we have long played a very active role in the climate arena. We provide policy-focused research and advice on climate resilient economy transformation, um, on financing for resilience, on just transitions. And more recently, we've been supporting small island developing states to achieve financial sustainability and environmental justice. Have we been supporting international alliances and equitable societies through our Resilient and Sustainable Islands Initiative, or RACI, that Emily has just mentioned? So these are complex issues, but very urgent issues that require action at all scales and across all sectors. And on that, I'm really pleased to note that today's event includes a range of perspectives and speakers from many spheres. You know, we have um, colleagues representing the legal sphere, human rights, climate policy, international development. It's the kind of diversity that we need to really push forward solutions. So I really hope that today's event provides a platform for a well-rounded, thought-provoking discussion on the current request for an ICJ advisory opinion but also for other multilateral initiatives, um, as well as you know, lessons for national climate litigations. And I hope that the experiences, the reflections that will be shared here today can go on to inform not just the UN General Assembly vote, but also the wider climate debate at COP28 and beyond. So I really wish you all an engaging discussion and productive event. I think there's a lot to learn from all of us. Um, back to you, Emily. 
Thank you very much, Sara. Um, so our event today, it will be split into two uh, parts. First of all, um, we're going to be hearing from um, a number of high-level speakers to better contextualize the ICJ resolution that's in, and its importance. We're also gonna have um, two panel discussions where we'll look beyond the current ICJ resolution to exchange views and share lessons from climate litigation cases and multilateral initiatives in pursuit of climate justice. So we're gonna have a number of high-level speakers and two panel discussions to look at the national climate litigation examples and lessons from those and um, the, um, the effect that international law can have on national um, climate litigation, and then we'll have a panel on the sort of more on the multilateral processes and, and dimensions of this. Um, and hopefully, we'll have time at the end for a Q and A and some closing remarks. But first of all, I'd like to um, hand over to our first um, invited speaker of the day, Nadia Sanchez Castillo Winkles, who is an international lawyer at Climate Legal Consulting and. Um, and also um, a visiting researcher at Utrecht University. Nadia, I hope you can set the scene by introducing the role of international law in advancing climate justice. Uh, over to you. Thank you, Emily, uh, and greetings, everyone. I am um, delighted to give opening remarks on the role of international law in advancing climate justice. Um, international law regulates action on climate change by setting its legal basis. Relevant international laws are, of course, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Paris Agreement, um, but also international human rights treaties and the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, um, given the effects of climate change impacts on human rights and on the ocean. The international legal framework also provides relevant principles such as international cooperation and the principle of prevention of significant harm to the environment. International law, it creates obligations for states. Our discussion today is ultimately about how to empower states to comply with these obligations. It is about how we can contribute to implementing international law relevant to climate change at the national, regional, and international level using the rule of law to advance climate justice. One way of doing this is through turning to courts. I'd like to share a slide with you showing an overview of procedures requesting Uh, yeah, I see it. Um, requesting advisory opinions before international courts and tribunals. To date, two requests for an advisory opinion have been submitted. One to the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea and one to the, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. At the same time, a multilateral process led by Vanuatu to request an advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice is ongoing among UN member states. The final draft resolution was uploaded to the UNE delegate portal on the 20th of February, so two days ago, and states are now able to co-sponsor the resolution. The vote at the UN General Assembly is expected to take place in late March or early April. If adopted, the resolution will engage the International Court of Justice to give an advisory opinion 
to clarify the obligations of states in respect of climate change and the legal consequences for, for states where, in the light of these obligations, they have caused significant harm to the climate system and with respect to states, peoples, and individuals. In fact, what these three requests have in common is that they ask the respective international court to clarify state obligations. One of the roles of international law and the international legal system in advancing climate justice is therefore to make clear what action, climate action, states are legally bound to. In addition, advisory opinions carry significant legal weight and moral authority and can affect the judgments of regional and national courts. They can also guide public policy as explicitly mentioned in the request by Chile and Colombia to the Inter-American Court. Importantly, the advisory opinions we are discussing today can also contribute to raising awareness about the international legal framework applicable to climate change and about the fact that climate change is a global challenge that falls within the international rule of law and not outside of it. You can stop showing this slide. Thank you. Um, at the regional and national level, international human rights law is playing an important role in advancing climate justice. Currently, there are three climate cases pending before the Grand Chamber of the European Court, Court of Human Rights. And hearings in two of these cases will be held in late March. In addition, the court has decided to adjourn its examination of six other climate cases until the Grand Chamber has ruled in those three cases that are pending. The European Convention on Human Rights has also been invoked in national cases, including the Urgenda and the Shell cases here in the Netherlands, the Klimatsa case in Belgium, and the climate litigation case in the Czech Republic. Human rights-based climate cases in Latin America have also referred to international human rights law in their legal argumentation, including the Demanda Generaciones Futuras versus Min Ambiente in Colombia and the Demanda de Amparo Ambiental Álvarez y Otros versus Peru. As a final remark, elements to take into account on the role of international law in national climate litigation include whether the national legal system incorporates international law directly, known as a monist system, or it requires an internal procedure in order to incorporate international law, known as a judicial system. In many instances, however, a mixture of both a monist and a dualist approach applies depending on the nature of the international laws being considered. Notably, Research shows that judicial attitudes are also a factor when it comes to implementing international law by national courts, and that national courts could act as agents of international legal development, including in the field of climate change. Thank you very much. Back to you, Emily. Thank, thanks a lot, Nadia, um, for explaining that and giving us a sense of the bigger picture and some of the kind of technical 
terms um, and processes. And I think for I can speak for others who are not um, legal experts in saying that this is quite um, it's quite a complex area that we're trying to get our heads around, but really important for climate policy and development practitioners to begin to really um, understand what's going on here. So thank you for for that introduction. Um, now we're going to get into a little bit more depth on um, some of the climate litigation um, that Nadia referred to. And I'd like to invite uh, Christiane Del Piano Lira to speak. Um, Dr. Del Piano Lira is attorney at law at the, at the University of Diego Portales in Chile and has a PhD from the University of Salamanca, Spain, and is judge and president of the Second Environmental Court in Chile and vice president of the Chilean Society of International Law. Christian, I hope you can give us an idea of progress in advancing climate justice through the Chilean courts. How far can climate litigation go? Over to you. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Emily. Thank you very much to ODI uh, for the invitation. It's a, it's a pleasure for me to, to, to share with you some, some thoughts and updates, really, uh, about the, uh, the climate justice and climate change uh, litigation, especially in, in my country. Um, I have uh, just five, five or a little bit more, uh, six minutes about um, to share with you some uh, thoughts that it's going to be divided in three kind of screenshots uh, that, that I would like to, to have regarding uh, what's happening in, in my country. Um, and what it's, it is, it is the context. It is developing the, the, the climate change litigation and the climate justice. Uh, and in the first place, I will uh, talk about some words about the context and legal instruments regarding climate change uh, in Chile. And uh, the second is uh, I'm, I'm going to share with you uh, some uh, examples uh, about cases of uh, uh, that we have uh, have uh, we have uh, um, um, we have ruled in the second environmental court, and uh, the third uh, in, the, in the third place and uh, very shortly because uh, Nadia told us about uh, about the advisory opinions. Uh, what is the context of of these advisory opinions and, and what in my thoughts? is uh, the importance of this uh, uh, advisory opinions uh, from the International Tribunal of, of the Law of the Sea and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, and eventually the ICJ uh, advisory opinion that I hope uh, is, going to, uh, is going to be in the future. Um, regarding the, the, first, the first thoughts, the context and legal instruments, uh, Chile has been described as a highly vulnerable uh, country uh, to climate change, accomplishing seven of nine vulnerability characteristics as defined in the United Nations Framework of Climate Change Convention. And in, in this uh, context, Chile has made serious efforts in order to count with a modern legal uh, framework to face the effects of climate change. As a short uh, review, I will remark two instruments. The first is a green tax law, which went into force in 2017, regarding mainly emissions of carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, and nitrogen oxides, regarding greenhouse gases, from stationary sources with boilers and turbines, and a tax on the first sale of new cars, considering the expected nitrogen oxides emissions over their lifetime. In June uh, 2022, six months ago, um, came into force the framework law on climate change, uh, the framework law I will call uh, hereafter, 
which represent, in my in my view, uh, a whole new paradigm in the lawmaking process in in our country. This framework law was built upon international recommendations and the principles of, uh, among others, scientific validity, cost effectiveness, ecosystem approach, precautionary principles, citizen participation. I mean, uh, principles that uh, has been developed uh, strongly in international law uh, and, and much of them uh, born uh, in international law. So here is a, a first point about the importance of, of those advisory opinions and, 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 and the evolution of these principles in international law judicial application in, uh, in, in internal courts uh, in general and in particular in the second environmental court. Um, the framework law focuses uh, in three main topics. Uh, the first is a multi-level governance uh, from national to local authorities, including, including uh, public and private participants in this governance. The second is the several uh, in, uh, are several in, uh, environmental management tools, some of them subject in the future to the judicial revision before the environmental courts. As I said before, uh, this law has six months, and and, the, and these instruments are are, are 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 building now. And the third is uh, is that that the projects or activities submitted to environmental impact assessment shall consider the climate change variable in the environmental components according to the respective regulations to be issued by the uh, Ministry of Environment, which was recently uh, released. In the second, in, in, in the second uh, point, the Chilean case law, um, in Chile, as in many other countries, climate litigation is increasing, increasingly viewed uh, by plaintiffs as a tool to reverse environmental decision or for, to repair environmental damages. In this regard, the Chilean environmental courts have had the opportunity to solve legal disputes on which climate change has been a critical element on the debate as well as on the judicial decision. I'm going to share uh, one, just one slide uh, to to show you. Um, I think it's it's going. Uh, you can, can can you see the slide? Yes. Yes. Uh, thank you. Um, if you, if we consider the Saving Center for Climate Change Law database on climate change that I'm showing you in in the in the slide. Um, this, this database on climate change litigation, it says uh, you have several uh, here uh, topics about the, the, the climate change litigation. In Chile, uh, we have most of our cases has been situated uh, on environmental assessment and permitting, as, as you can see uh, in, the, in the slide, and suits against corporations. As a result, we have about 10 or 12, more or less. It's, it's, it's in, I mean, it's, it's a breaking news. We have, we have receiving, we are receiving now some, some other cases that we, we're going to, to analyze. Um, so we can find some examples of climate change criteria on Chilean judgments, even if uh, its developments in the judiciary practice is, st is still in er early state. Among those examples, I would like to share with you uh, two cases uh, in order to fit the time. 
The first case is Compañía Minera Nevada S.P.A. Uh, against uh, Environmental versus Environmental Assessment Agency. Uh, the case uh, regarding a, a, a mining project, uh, Pascualama, it was about the revision of an environmental authorization of a mining project in operation at that time. The, the mine is closed now. Uh, based on changes produced on assessed variables, especially water quality. In this case, the environmental court ruled that the objective of the procedure established on the revision of previous authorizations, environmental authorizations, is to take corrective actions to adapt a project that was assessed in the past to any type of natural or non-natural phenomena as a tool to prevent risks to the environment. Among those phenomena, the consideration of climate change and its associated risks was crucial for the court and must be included in the review process of the environmental authorization. Then the second case uh, called Jaralarcón versus uh, Environmental Assessment Agency uh, about uh, a, different, a different mining project in another part, northern part of Chile uh, called Cerro Colorado. In this case, plaintiffs challenged the environmental impact assessment for the continuation of a mining project uh, in the in, in the Tarabacá region of Chile. The main claim refers to the lack of due consideration of public participation on the mining project's impact on groundwater resources and related surface ecosystems. The court did not question the methodology of for evaluating the impact on water resources, nor did it annul the mitigation measures originally imposed within the evaluation process. Quite the opposite. It considered that these measures were aligned with the relevant norms. However, the court considered that a proper approach taking into account the country's international commitments under the, the United Nations Framework on Climate Change Convention and the Paris Agreement also requires the incorporation of climate change scenarios. Thus, it requires reassessing the mitigation measures regarding the extraction of groundwater resources in the area in light of current and potential climate change impacts. I wish, uh, then as, as a third uh, topic I would like to, to, to share with you uh, shortly is uh, about the impacts of uh, this advisory opinions of international courts or, or where, are we where are we going with, with this advisory opinion. For Chilean environmental courts, the decisions of international courts upon requests of uh, advisory opinions are greatly welcomed as sources of new criteria and interpretations regarding, regarding rules and principles of international law related with climate change justice. Those opinions will be for sure considered as a part of the framework to solve the increasing number of cases on climate change litigation. Uh, nowadays, uh, we have. I, I will refer. Not. I, I will not refer to to request uh, to to the, the, the eventual eventually request for advisory advisory opinion on the ICJ. But um, it is important to say that uh, we have the request on the I, uh, the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea and the International Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Uh, as Nadia said before, at the end of 2022, Chile and Colombia signed a request uh, to the uh, to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights for an advisory opinion on climate change and human rights. The request is related to the human rights obligations of states at national level, subnational entities, and non-state actors facing the climate emergency. The advisory opinion request will guide the countries 
of the region for the development of policies and programs at the local, national, and international level that uphold the commitments under the American Convention of Human Rights and other human rights and environmental treaties. But also, it will be useful for other countries abroad, the inter-American system, considering universal principles of human rights and the uh, principles of, uh, uh, of uh, environmental law and uh, climate change law as well. So as final remarks, yeah, and as a short resume, I can highlight the following topics. The first, Chile accounts with a framework law on climate change and other technical regulations. Uh, together, they constitute a regulatory framework that must be obeyed by public and public um, private actors that opens new challenges for future litigations in the in the in our second environmental court. The second remark is that Chile's environmental courts have ruled on legal disputes in which climate change was a critical factor from legal and scientific point of view. This is going to be a good basis in order to, 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 to see or, or to evolve the, the rules and interpretation of rules and principles regarding climate change litigation. And third, and finally, um, in a breaking news context, really, uh, to quote advisory opinions request will be an important source of new criteria for climate change litigation cases settled before the Chilean environmental courts. Uh, thank you very much again, um, and, and, and I'm open to Q&A uh, to, to questions uh, after, afterwards. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, um, Christian. And um, uh, yeah, we can, I'm sure people will have questions um, they'd like to ask you, you can put them in, in the chat. Um, that is really fascinating. I think um, I'm you know, really stunned by the amount of cases that there are um, going on. And um, I think, you know, really um, the fact that, you know, those are originating in, in Chile and Latin America and, um, and many other places is really um, very, um, promising um, for and and when one of those cases you know is is successful that will you know really create an important precedent um I want to move on to our first panel discussion, um, which will look at the synergies between um, climate justice, uh, climate justice and litigation and international law um, in a bit more detail. And to understand the importance of the ICJ resolution, we really do need to be clear about these links um, between international law and, and national climate litigation, how they influence each other. So I have two panelists um, here today who have both practiced law and are specialists in human rights law. Um, Ro Han Nan Thakumar is a senior solicitor in the Pacifica program, which is part of Australia's Environmental Defenders Office. And Rohan focuses on climate and environmental justice um, litigation, particularly in Fiji, Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands. And the other panelist is um, James Goldston, who is executive director of the Open Society Justice Initiative, which advances the rule of law and legal protection of rights around the world through advocacy, litigation, research, and the promotion of legal capacity. So let me start with you, uh, Rohan, ask, um, how do you think um, international law can influence national climate litigation? And if you can give some examples um, from um, climate litigation cases of interest that you're aware of, that would be great. Sure, thank you, Emily. And um, hi, everyone, and, and welcome. I'm speaking to you today from NAM or Melbourne in Australia, and I just very quickly want to pay my respects to um, the traditional owners of the land on which I'm speaking from today, which is um, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and uh, yeah, pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. 
Um, so good question. How does international law influence national climate litigation? So I think at the outset it's helpful just to zoom out for a minute and just uh, appreciate that what we're seeing at the moment is a dialogue amongst courts of the world, of the, of the world as they sort of reason toward one case at a time, a principal position on the law of climate change, essentially. Uh, and that dialogue is very much informed by international law. Any advisory opinion that we uh, get will be critical in uh, informing that dialogue. But that dialogue fits into a feedback loop where national climate litigation, also as a source of law for the purposes of the International Court of Justice statute, um, can also have an influence on international law making in that court. And so there is that feedback loop that happens. One um, busy, I guess, manifestation of this dialogue is happening in the field of human rights and change or human rights and the environment generally. Um, international law has for a long time recognised the link between human rights and the environment. It sort of started off as a kind of greening of existing human rights law, whereby uh, instruments and, and courts would start to recognise that existing human rights have a particular environmental content that can be uh, used to protect against environmental degradation and climate change impacts. And then more recently, you're starting to see the growth of a sort of autonomous, specifically environmental rights, like a right to a healthy environment or a right to a clean environment. And there are numerous instruments that have been critical in that story. So you have the Inter-American uh, Code of Human Rights as Advisory Opinion of 2017 on Human Rights and the Environment, which is highly influential. You, you have uh, Human Rights Committee uh, General Comment number 36 about the right to life, recognising the link with climate. You have uh, more recently UN Human Rights Council resolutions and UN General Assembly resolutions recognise the right to a healthy environment. And uh, most recently, you've got a UN Human Rights Committee decision or view uh, called Illy and Others Against Australia, or, or also called the Torres Strait 8 case, uh, where the committee upheld uh, that Australia had violated uh, Torres Strait Islander claimants' rights to culture and also to uh, private family and home life, um, although they appreciated that uh, climate change impacts on the Torres Strait Islander communities could impact or violate um, the right to life because of the factual basis on which the case was brought. The, the committee ultimately wasn't comfortable with saying a violation had in fact occurred with respect to that right. So I, say, I set out those international examples um, really for this purpose. They get picked up and utilised down at the domestic level. Uh, the extent to which that happens can vary. Uh, so if you, uh, I do a lot of work in, in the Pacific and a lot of Pacific constitutions have provisions that authorise the courts to look at international law when they're interpreting uh, and applying the rights that are contained in their constitution. And so in that kind of scenario, uh, those kinds of instruments uh, are very helpful and it's not very controversial for those courts to use them. Um, so there's a case called Morawa and China Harbour Engineering Company, which is heard in 2020, where Justice Kandipasi of the PNG National Court, probably uh, the greenest judge of that court, uh, extended the or developed the right to life in the Papua New Guinea Constitution in line with international law to recognise its environmental and climate-related um, content. 
However, sometimes it's not so easy. So, for example, in my country, Australia, we have a bit of a uh, degree of caution when it comes to our courts engaging with international law materials and foreign law materials. But even in that setting, it's generally accepted that uh, international human rights law can be an interpretive source for um, determining the scope and content of rights. And so in a recent case called, just late last year, called Waratah Cole and Youth Verdict, uh, the Land Court of Queensland uh, made a, was authorised to make a non-binding recommendation to uh, a minister not to approve a uh, coal mining project include, on numerous bases, including the unjustifiable impact that would have on the human rights of the communities affected. And uh, in so doing, acknowledging the caution that every Australian judge seems to have to say, um, they went on to consider the Inter-American Advisory Opinion on Human Rights and the Environment to help recognise the link between human rights, environment and development. And then they also went on to recognise, uh, to, to, to use that uh, very recent Human Rights Committee decision, uh, Billy, that I mentioned, to, to help give scope and content to domestic human rights that are essentially implementations of Australia's international human rights law obligations. So those are just two examples of, of uh, the influence international law can have domestically. Thanks. Thanks very much. Fascinating, Rowan. And I think, um, yeah, fascinating that, that there are have been successful cases. So I, um, not just um, things underway, but, um, you know, cases that have actually um, made had an impact already. Um, let me turn to James. Same question, really. Do you have um, examples where you can see um, that international law is having an influence on national climate litigation? And um, how do you see that progressing? Thank you, Emily. And I want to thank ODI um, for this event, which I think is really important. And I also just want to do a shout out for Vanuatu um, for its um, courage and leadership and skill in marshalling a coalition that puts this issue front and center, uh, potentially before um, the International Court of Justice. I think that's hugely significant. I think the question of how international law influences um, any national litigation is, of course, complicated. And as we've heard from Nadia initially, can depend on a number of factors, including the nature of a country's judicial system, its judicial culture, the weight that international law carries in domestic law, the particular topic at hand. And of course, by virtue of their procedural posture, some cases may be more susceptible to the influence of international law um, than others. But in general, we've seen that international law has played an increased uh, significance in the reasoning of national courts considering climate changes in the last several years. In 2018, um, the Colombian Supreme Court, as we heard, recognized the Colombian Amazon itself as a subject of rights entitled to protection, conservation, maintenance, and restoration. The court ordered the government to formulate and implement action plans to address deforestation in the Amazon. And in so doing, the court relied in part on international legal norms, including the Framework Convention, the Paris Agreement, the Aarhus Convention, um, which together, of course, establish the right to a healthy environment, require states to take action to mitigate climate change and ensure public participation in decision-making related to the environment. The court also recognized the precautionary principle of international law requiring that states take action to prevent environmental harm, even in the absence of complete scientific uh, certainty. And the court's decision recognizes international law norms are binding 
on the Colombian government and play a critical role in defining the government's obligations with regard to the protection of the environment. In 2021, the German Constitutional Court in the Neubauer case struck down parts of the Federal Climate Protection Act as incompatible with fundamental rights for failing to set sufficient provision for emission cuts beyond 2030. And for the first time in its jurisprudence, the court stated that the fundamental rights as intertemporal guarantees of freedom afford protection against the greenhouse gas reduction burdens imposed by German law being unilaterally offloaded onto the future. As in Colombia, the German court relied extensively on international law. The court noted that Germany as a signatory and ratifier of the Paris Agreement and other international treaties and agreements has legal obligations under international law to take action to mitigate climate change and limit global warning. Um, the same year, 2021, in uh, Mealy Defensi versus Shell, the Hague District Court in the Netherlands found that international law imposed legal obligations on a private corporation and ordered Shell to reduce its emissions by 45 percent by 2030 relative to 2019 across all activities, including its own emissions and end use emissions. And in reaching this path-breaking decision, the court made extensive reference to the Paris Agreement, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, universal declaration of human rights, and customary international law. The court held that, that Shell's duty to reduce its emissions was derived both from Dutch law and international law. And then in 2022, most recently, in ordering the Brazilian government to fully reactivate its national climate fund to support projects that mitigate climate change, Brazil's Supreme Court recognized the Paris Agreement as a human rights treaty, which gives it legal significance for future cases. Treaties on environmental law, the court reasoned, are a type of human rights treaty, and for that reason, enjoy supranational status. There is therefore no legally valid option to simply fail to combat climate change. So in brief, those are just examples, but international law, I think it's fair to say, is gaining more frequent reference in national litigation with increasingly meaningful impacts on the jurisprudence. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, again, perhaps participants um, in this call will not be aware really of um, the significance of, of those cases and, and the sheer number of them. So I think um, it's it's really, this is a really important discussion. I want to move into the sort of um, the implications of um, this um, in, in increasing amount of um, climate litigation and national um, frameworks, legal frameworks um, that that's developing. How how do you think this um, is going to influence um, international climate change commitments? Do you think that these kind of um, the sort of legal processes are going to have an influence or a bearing on the climate change negotiations? Um, James and and then Rohan. Sure. Um, uh, thanks again, uh, Emily. And uh, just to be brief. Um, in thinking about the impacts that litigation can have um, in terms of compliance with international climate change commitments, there's you know, more generally an abundant literature on the impacts of strategic litigation. Um, academic studies have come to different conclusions about the extent to which governments comply with court judgments and why they may do so. In fact, my organization, the Open Society Justice Initiative has published a series of reports based on extensive research, examining the many different impacts that litigation can have in different fields. 
But in examining how litigation can influence compliance with international climate change commitments, let me limit myself to four points. First of all, I think litigation can create legal precedent and clarify the legal obligations of countries and corporations to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and comply with international agreements. We've seen that in the Urhenda case in the Netherlands that was referred to. We've seen that also in the subsequent Royal Dutch Shell case that established a legal precedent that corporations can be held accountable for their role in contributing to climate change and can be required to take action to reduce their emissions. Their, their emissions. Uh, these were both domestic judgments. I think the, the Vanuatu initiative may be even more consequential in asking the International Court of Justice expressly to examine what are the legal obligations of states flowing in part from their existing climate change commitments and the parallel COSIS initiative before the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea um, also, I think, could be potentially highly significant. Secondly, litigation can shift the policy or practice of governments or businesses. In the Neubauer case in Germany, for example, just weeks after the court upheld the claim uh, by youth plaintiffs challenging the constitutionality of provisions of the German climate protection law, the German cabinet took action. It approved proposals to raise their climate mitigation targets uh, to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2045 with targets to re reduce emissions by 65% by 2030. And following the Hague District Court's decisions in the Shell case, and even while that case is now on appeal, Shell nonetheless announced its intention to increase the speed of its planned transition to cleaner energy production in line with the judgment. And after the ruling in that Hague case, the Financial Times quoted representatives of other businesses in high emitting industries as confirming that they too will be increasing their climate change mitigation efforts. Um, third, in addition to making precedent and changing policy, litigation can impose financial costs and reputational harm on entities that are not complying with their climate change commitments, which may incentivize them to take actions to reduce emissions. Several municipal governments in the United States have filed lawsuits against fossil fuel companies, arguing that the company should be held liable for the costs of adapting to rising sea levels and other climate change impacts. These lawsuits seek to impose financial penalties on companies and raise awareness about the role of the fossil fuel industry in contributing to climate change. And so as they proceed, they may have indirect impacts on company share prices um, that we may see. In another case uh, in 2019, a Scottish court ruled that the Royal Bank of Scotland had failed to adequately consider the climate change impacts of its investments and ordered it to review its policies. That ruling imposed reputational harm on the Royal Bank and highlighted the need for financial institutions to take climate change risks into account. And finally, um, a fourth element, I think, is that lawsuits can build public pressure about the importance of complying with international climate change commitments. Uh, in confirming the obligations of governments to comply with national and international climate change commitments, we've seen that the decisions in Colombia and Brazil helped galvanize public pressure and raised awareness. Indeed, sometimes even the mere filing of a lawsuit can act as a focal point for public attention on climate change before a ruling is issued. And we've seen that development with the landmark legal action by a Peruvian farmer against the large German electric company, RWE, which was filed in 2015 in the court in Essen, Germany, and is currently pending, but has already raised a great deal of attention about what RWE and other similar companies are doing. Let me stop there. 
thanks very much. And yeah, really um, highlighting the, the kind of implications, particularly for the corporate sector. I wonder, Rohan, um, are we also going to see um, governments kind of stepping up their commitments? Are we going to see um, sort of more um, interest in um, advancing like the um, support to loss and damage and the, these kind of discussions in the climate? Um, change negotiations as a result of this pressure coming uh, around climate litigation and sort of the legal um, issues? Yeah, broadly, I think so, broadly. Um, I would endorse everything James, the four points that James has, has, has made um, about how litigation, you know, allows the enforcement of commitments on, on, on governments and on occasion also on private entities that it um, can change policy, that it uh, increases reputational risk and uh, can impose financial penalties and, and, and that it builds public pressure. Those, those endorse that entirely. Um, the one, I might just zone in on the, on the first point, that the enforcing of commitments, the, the, when you zoom in, um, that picture can, can sometimes be a little bit obscured for reasons that have already been mentioned. So um, at, at a granular analysis, whether well, how influential litigation can really be will can will vary. Uh, it will depend on the type of court you're in, the constitutional role of that court in the context of its constitutional system and design. It will depend on the particular cause of action that's invoked to try and enforce the climate change commitments, be it tort, be it human rights law, be it administrative law, be it something else. And then um, to pick up on uh, will be inspired by an idea's point before about appreciating the difference between monism and dualism. It'll also depend on whether these international climate change commitments, at least in some states, have been implemented at the level of law as legislation or, or, or whether it, it's still at the level of policy. So courts are quite comfortable coming in and arbitrating issues or adjudicating issues at the level of law. Um, they feel they've got the institutional competence to do that and they've got the constitutional authorization to do that. But at the level of policy, it can be more tricky. Courts don't feel necessarily like they have the institutional competence to do that or the constitutional authorization to do that. And if I can just very quickly give a couple of examples sort of making that point good. Um, so, so the first is a New Zealand example called, um, from a case called Smith and Fonterra. So uh, Mr. Smith, who's a Maori man on behalf of himself and his community, brought a case against uh, Fonterra and other entities um, in relation to their emissions and, and really their inadequate offsetting. So the broad point was that you guys aren't going to reach net zero in the time you have to. And, and they chose tort law as the vehicle to bring that claim. And the court threw it out. They struck it out at the beginning without even... Well, they dealt with the tort questions, but in in, um, in a sort of non-binding way, we call it obiter dictum uh, in at least common law countries. It, it's sort of just some reasoning that the court gives, but it's not binding reasoning. Uh, the, the binding reason why they threw it out is, is really because they said that kind of assessment uh, is, is not one that tort law, as applied by a domestic court, is well-placed to uh, make. Um, that they said that what you need to assess whether this company is adequately offsetting is a sophisticated regulatory response that is established in law and that has been the, um, benefited, I guess, from the product of international coordination. So that's them 
essentially saying if it's not in law, we're not going to go there and you can't use the common law tort of negligence to get us there. Um, that's not our role. So that's one example. An, an example on the other end is that case I mentioned before, Waratah Coal, where because of particular legislation in Queensland, the court was authorised to make non-binding recommendations to the minister about whether or not that minister uh, should or should not approve a coal mining project. And I mentioned before how part of the reason why the court said, no, minister, you shouldn't uh, approve this mining project because it was because of the impact it would have on human rights. Uh, another uh, factor that the court considered was that the project itself would make a material contribution to climate change and, and critically, it would narrow Australia's options for achieving Paris Agreement goals, uh, for achieving its international climate change commitments. And that's significant because that's the court saying this might actually constrain Australia's ability to meet its international climate change commitments and so the minister shouldn't um, approve the project. That's the court getting into the policy question, yeah, not the legal question, the policy question. But the only reason that it's doing that is because it has been authorised to do it in a non-binding way by way of recommendation. And so those fears that a, at least a common law court often has about its institutional competence and its constitutional authorization, they start to fall away and the court becomes more comfortable in trying to hold um, the government to account about its uh, climate change commitments. Thanks. Thank you very much. Those are really um, excellent, very kind of vivid examples. I'm, I'm going to have to move on. I suggest if you have some good kind of publications, further information, um, James and Rohan, on these topics, if you could put links in the chat um, for people to follow up, that would be great. Um, I'm going to move on now and um, welcome um, his Excellency Ralph um, Regan Vanu, who is Vanuatu's Minister of Climate Change Adaptation, Meteorology, Geohazards, Energy, uh, Environment and um, Disaster Risk Management. Um, and the minister is, um, because it's very late um, in the evening in Vanuatu, um, has rec kindly recorded a speech um, for this event. So I think if the team could please pe uh, play the speech. Um, the minister is going to talk a bit more about the um, ICJ initiative um, and its um, the purpose and um, why um, many other nations are really getting behind this initiative. So I think if we have the, the video ready to play. Thank you. Good morning. I'm very pleased to be joining you today to discuss a very timely topic for my country. The planet is facing an existential climate crisis. This is not in dispute and has not been for some time. The science is clear. Seven years ago, 196 parties at COP21 in Paris signed a legally binding international treaty on climate change. Countries around the world celebrated this landmark first step to what we hope would be accountable, transparent and life-saving requirements to reduce the impact of global warming. But unfortunately, little has changed, and those most vulnerable in our small island developing states knew something more had to be done. Beyond the UNFCCC, other instruments under agreed international law already contain clear obligations to prevent harm to the environment and protect human rights. But how can these obligations be applied to the climate crisis? Pacific Island University students ask themselves and others these questions. Those discussions grew into a truly international call for clarity and for justice. 
Vanuatu accepted the call from our youth and has since been leading the campaign for an advisory opinion on climate change from the International Court of Justice. The ICJ is the only principal organ of the UN system that has not yet been given an opportunity to help address the climate crisis. To get to the court, next month Vanuatu and 15 other nations will table a resolution at the United Nations General Assembly. If we obtain a simple majority of votes in support of the resolution, the International Court of Justice will consider our question. Right now we have around 90 countries that have confirmed they will vote in favour of this UNGA resolution, so we are nearly there. But more needs to be done. Specifically, we need to ensure all member states feel comfortable that this initiative is not intended to name or shame any particular nation. The question to the court only asks for clarification of legal obligations already agreed under international law and does not create anything new. The question is also forward-looking, considering both historical emissions but also emissions of today and the future. The primary goal of this exercise is to bring clarity to all states so that we can take better action moving forward. The resulting advisory opinion will help states revise and enhance their nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement and strengthen domestic laws and policies. The advisory opinion will likely identify gaps in international law, which will help us as we build and improve our multilateral climate negotiations processes. The advisory opinion will also ensure we base our relationships on the adherence to the rule of international law. As we have seen with the recent destabilizing war in Ukraine, we must prioritize an international legal framework which is clear on what acceptable state behavior is and what is not. The rule of law is foundational to the United Nations and to its mission of peace. From the smallest villages in the Pacific Islands to the global stage, the rule of law is all that stands between peace and stability and a climate-safe world and utter destruction. The rule of law protects the vulnerable and is the basis of international cooperation, especially in regards to climate change. Vanuatu has heard the strong call and expectation from grassroots youth movements and indeed over 1,500 civil society organisations from around the world to draft a forward-looking, indeed intergenerational, question. Colleagues, the focus of the question is on the protection of fundamental human rights of present and future generations, a critical shift in narrative which may yield greater climate action and ambition among all states in the global community. In conclusion, it is time for the world's highest court to give us the clarity we all need to do more. We are out of time in Vanuatu, and our children need us to demonstrate the required leadership. Friends, not all states are of the same opinion as Vanuatu on the value of this initiative. But you can sway their view in the next weeks before the vote, and I ask you to do all you can in this regard. Thank you for your attention. So a very powerful speech from Minister Regan Banu there makes it clear how much is at stake and how important this um, advisory opinion really is um, to Vanuatu and other small island developing states and um, other and developing countries and, and the world. Um, so our second panel discussion will look at the role of the international courts in climate justice more broadly and how they sit within the overall climate change and policy architecture. Um, this panel is going to be moderated by my colleague Christopher Bartlett, who is a climate diplomacy manager for the Republic of Vanuatu. Christopher, over to you. And we have until about 20 past the hour for this panel discussion. Thanks. Thank you very much, Emily. And thank you to ODI for organizing this very useful and timely discussion. 
Uh, as you've heard from the Honorable Minister, the increasingly devastating impacts of climate change are existential for the Pacific Islands. And there is a need not only to address the impacts themselves, but also the injustice that uh, brought us here in the first place. Just days ago, as we heard, the core group of 18 nations have finalized and uploaded the final draft resolution, which will go before the United uh, Nations General Assembly next month. And countries can now become co-sponsors of this resolution. And in fact, just over the last two days, we've had more than two dozen countries officially register to be co-sponsors of this resolution. You can actually read the resolution right now on uh, the website of the Vanuatu government, which is vanuatuicj.com. And you can see just how transformative the question is. What it does, it asks two very straightforward questions uh, under international law. The first is what are those legal obligations of states? And the second, of course, the legal consequences when significant harm results. And I'm very pleased today to introduce you to three incredible panelists who will react to this initiative uh, on an advisory opinion from the ICJ from their own context. Uh, we have Digno uh, Mantolvan, who is a researcher uh, at the Universidad Carlos III in Madrid. We have Nicole Ponsa, who is the front convener for Asia of the world's youth for climate justice, and Harjit Singh, who is the head of global political strategy at Climate Action Network International, as well as the global engagement director of the Fossil Fuel Treaty Initiative. But first, over to you, Digno. Uh, he will be responding in Spanish, so please do ensure you're on the correct channel for interpretations. But Digno, could you tell us more about the innovative request that has recently been brought by Chile and Colombia for the advisory opinion from the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and how this, as well as the ICJ advisory opinion process, can actually move us forward towards more ambition uh, in climate action. Over to you, Digno. Thank you very much. Christopher, thank you very much for the organization of this panel. Muchas gracias por la invitación y muchas Thank you very much for the invitation and thank you for this introduction. I would like to highlight the specific aspects of this um, opinion. In relation with the obligations that uh, the states have in climate, it's important to highlight the differential, the different impacts that this is having in different countries in Latin America. In 2022, in March, the Inter-American Human Rights Commission was highlighting in, in his um, report, in their report, sorry, the report highlighted the importance for the states to ensure the mitigation of this environmental impact. 
due to climate to the climate crisis especially in the communities in the rural communities in the migrant communities etc climate change is a big risk in latin america a big part of latin america is by the coast not just the caribbean but also in south america so the effects of climate change can generate uh, big migration migrations and that can affect uh, the populations in terms of um, human rights so advisory opinions uh, by the um, Inter-American Human Rights Court. Has six, seven clear approaches that I want to explain. And in the first place, as I said, uh, to take into account that the impact is different depending on the place and the populations. So there have to be specific obligations. And we need to focus on these groups like indigenous people, for example, rural areas, fishing areas, also women and children. So there are these specific obligations specific needs. In second place, the importance of having the right to access information in terms of climate. The link between the regional agreement and the inter-American uh, human rights system. That is also a very important point. So there is this uh, commitment to contemplate this link in the third place, we have the future generations, how we must guarantee, how the states must guarantee the future for the coming generations. Then this is very important because um, it's the first resolution that uh, mentions this. And it is a key point. Another point is the importance of um, legal resources, the right to legal aid, and the right of the communities to have a consultation that includes climate aspects. 
And the consultation as a tool to guarantee um, the good condition, the good environmental conditions. The consultation also needs to assess global impact, not just regional impact. And I think this is an important change. And also, uh, international cooperation is another of the another one of the um, important aspects in relation to climate. And finally, I would like to say that there is a, another precedent in Latin America, which is a resolution in November 2017. For me, the important thing is to see what, what the focus will be or in this um, advisory opinion. And just quickly, uh, migration, climate migration, I think it's one of the very important aspects. And we will really need to talk about that. And it will need to be included in the advisory opinion, then also the varied impacts. And I also want to mention the energy transition as a very important subject. For example, um, in Latin America, there is um, lithium is a very important metal um, that has the, the, you know, the sourcing of lithium is affecting the local communities. And I think this should also be contemplated in the advisory opinion. And finally, I want to remind the importance of the future generations and how important it is that this uh, is mentioned. Thank you, um, Digno, and congratulations to Chile and Colombia. We are looking Estamos um, esperando. And so these are can be seen as working very much in parallel and co-supportive. I'd like to move now to uh, a colleague, uh, Nicole Ponza, who is the front convener for Asia of the world's youth for climate justice. Uh, Nicole, you heard the Honorable Minister Reagan Vanu talk about how this initiative uh, originated from students in the Pacific Island and is very much uh, geared towards outcomes for future generations. So from a climate uh, justice perspective, why uh, is this question to the International Court of Justice so important for young people? How does this initiative begin to address what I think you all have been demanding so clearly for so long? Over to you, Nicole. Thank you so much, Christopher, and thank you for inviting me and raising the voice of youth this very crucial and relevant conversation. So as you said, I would just like first to commend and acknowledge my colleagues, in fact, my friends from the Pacific who are courageous youth leaders and have put the climate crisis on the global political agenda. So this is crucial for us because again, we want to emphasize how human rights can play and must play a part of the solution in addressing climate change. So our aim 
in the world's youth for climate justice is to contribute to integrating a human rights-based approach into the climate change discussions. So growing up in the Philippines, it wasn't easy for me to grasp the concept of climate change. But every year I see rise in our sea levels, the destruction of our crops due to natural, or I dare say human-caused disaster. And I witness how every year our mountains were transformed into mines and our forests were being cut and wiped out. In fact, in the case of uh, Oposa versus Factoran, otherwise known as the children's case for us, the claimants argued that the logging concessions in the Philippines would wipe out old growth forests and that in 10 years, there will be nothing left for them and for future generations. So this is how the landmark case of Oposa versus Factoran gave life to the principle of intergenerational responsibility in the Philippines. So as a young lawyer my, myself in law school, we were taught two basic things that first, the state cannot be sued. And second, it's basic that children acting on their own another crazy claim of acting for future generation had no legal personality in the court of law. So this question to the International Court of Justice as the principal judicial organ of the United Nations, or as we, we, like, we like to say or call the world's highest court is, in fact, the proper forum to endorse the principle of intergenerational equity as hopefully as an inter customary international law and connect it to state obligations to protect the rights of the current and future generations from the adverse effect of climate change. So again, this is important because I really think we've always struggled to effectively communicate the real meaning of human-caused climate change. You know, but just recently in my hometown, for example, we were struck by a super, super typhoon. Now in the Philippines, this is nothing new. We get an average of 20 typhoons in a year. But what we didn't expect was for this one to destabilize a whole city. This was not a remote island in the coastal or mountainous area, but a highly urbanized city. So in the aftermath of that typhoon, a whole city had no electricity, no drinking water, no utility water, phones were useless, and lines to buy food and gas spanned kilometers. It looked like something out of an apocalyptic movie, except it wasn't a movie, it's real life and we were living it. And what really stayed with me throughout this experience was the disparity of responses to the disaster. So the rich were able to buy generators off the bat and have them shipped from neighboring provinces, while the poor and marginalized had no electricity and or water for months. So vulnerable and marginalized sectors bear the brunt of the consequences and the, the adverse effects of climate change. So for us in the world's youth for climate justice, this campaign for an advisory opinion is also a campaign for homes and our lives. And that's why it's a very important avenue for that nexus between climate change and human rights, which has not been still, we're still, uh, not putting it forward in the discussion in terms of climate negotiations and things like that. And so we are hoping that with the advisory opinion with the ICJ, we could finally um, concretize that and uh, cement that uh, nexus between climate change and human rights. Well, thank you, Nicole, for making such a, painting such a clear picture of where youth and young people are coming from. Um, maybe as a follow-up question, could I ask, um, what are your thoughts on 
upcoming climate litigation. We've heard a lot about youth-driven cases. How do you think this ICJ advisory opinion might enable or support those pathways? Yeah, so we see that already um, in the case of Urgenda and Nibal, where our experts and specialists, specialists have mentioned. So we see that national courts are increasingly comfortable with relying also in international climate change law obligations. So um, I think this will, and I believe that this will really influence national climate litigations and also assist our domestic courts in their efforts to develop a more consistent approach to the in enforcement of environmental and international standards. And also, hopefully at, at that point, uh, we are able to identify with the advisory opinion, uh, benchmarks to assess state actions. Uh, and this will give national courts tools to scrutinize such activities. Well, thank you again, Nicole, and um, congratulations to you and the World Youth for Climate Justice for inspiring states like Vanuatu to take up your, uh, your cries. And we will continue to fight uh, on your behalf with you alongside as, as long as we can. I might uh, move now to our final panelist, Harjit Singh, who is the head of global political strategy at Climate Action Network International, as well as the Global Engagement Director at the Fossil Fuel Treaty Initiative. Uh, Harjit has been involved in the UNFCCC negotiations for a long time, and I know often very frustrated at the slow progress and minimal, minimal outcomes that we see, uh, particularly for the most vulnerable. So in this context, Harjit, how do you think this ICJ advisory opinion with such a strong focus on human rights might actually positively influence the outcomes of our international climate negotiations? Thank you very much, Christopher. Uh, thank you, um, ODI, for having me. And congratulations again uh, to you, Vanuatu government, for your leadership on the ICJ campaign and best wishes for the next steps. Um, so as, as Nicole reminded us, and, and we, we are seeing the climate crisis in the form of unprecedented floods, storms, drought, and sea level rise, and many other climate impacts. And uh, at the same time, we uh, expect governments to come up with climate action plans so that we can still keep the hope of staying below 1.5 alive, at the same time deal with climate impacts through scaling up adaptation and also addressing loss and damage. But uh, as, as Minister Regan Vanu also uh, pointed out that the, these climate action plans or what we call nationally determined contributions are inadequate and they have not been based on fair share. Uh, in fact, uh, at the UNFCCC in the form of Paris Agreement, what we got uh, is a mechanism that is bottom up. Now, in this case, bottom up doesn't work. In this case, we need something top down, which is based on equity, which is based on countries' uh, responsibilities, based on their, their historical emissions and their capacities. And, and th that has not happened. And if we look at the current uh, state of ambition, it's going to take us way beyond 2.5 degrees Celsius. And imagine at 1.2 degrees, the level of impacts we are facing, uh, we just cannot afford even a fraction uh, in the increase of, of these impacts. And, and, and small island states are particularly vulnerable. So the first thing that uh, ICJ can do, as we also discussed in case of litigation, is providing that legal clarity uh, that advisory opinion can bring, which will 
pressure countries to improve their nationally determined contributions and, and not undermine Paris Agreement, but strengthen domestic policies and legislations and particularly the human rights obligation. Uh, we need to acknowledge that what UNFCCC or Paris Agreement provides is a primary delivery vehicle uh, to respond to, uh, to the climate challenge and also holding countries uh, to account. And this is where we see ICJ as a complementary initiative uh, that builds on the momentum of what we got at COP27 and uh, you and other multilateral cooperation processes, as I said, to keep uh, the momentum and, and make sure that 1.5 goal is alive and, and vulnerable countries get support. Now, Paris Agreement does acknowledge uh, the obligation on human rights. It talks about right to health and rights of indigenous people, local communities, migrants, and so on. And the recent decision that we got at COP27, the Sharm el-Sheikh implementation plan, also included language on human rights. Um, and it does talk about respecting, promoting, and, and considering the perspectives of uh, and obligations on human rights. So what we need is pressure. What we need is more guidance. What we need uh, is, is, is public pressure as well, so that the outcomes that come from COP28 can be, can be strengthened. We can scale up adaptation and address loss and damage. And the way ICJ uh, resolution aims to you know, get uh, clarity on the obligation of states, particularly towards present and future generations and talking of legal consequences. I think this is extremely important to send a very strong message to the UNFCC process, to Paris Agreement, uh, that how important it is for us to scale up our action and, and, and update our, our climate action plans. And, and to me, and you know, Christopher, I keep saying that we eventually would like to see advisory opinion be turned into a public opinion that makes this vehicle of UNFCCC and Paris Agreement really walk in that, that direction much faster uh, than what it is right now. Thank you, Harjit, uh, for again articulating, I think, what many around the world have been uh, feeling and asking for a long time. And it's certainly the intention that this clarity brings Please, all the participants, join me in giving a resounding thanks to our three uh, panelists. I take away very much from the, this discussion that uh, this advisory opinion at the ICJ and the advisory opinion in the Inter-American uh, Court of Human Rights will be more uh, than transformative. And it's an approach that I think we've been missing to date and will help us along. Uh, I can say with certainty that the government of Vanuatu and the core group of nations that have helped us develop the resolution for the General Assembly are very much coming at this uh, from four key angles, the first of which is strengthening and upholding the rule of existing international law. Uh, we're, of course, very focused on protecting uh, and promoting the human rights of uh, all people everywhere. And of course, as we heard uh, so eloquently from Nicole, ensuring that the rights of both present and future generations make it into these discussions. And finally, ensuring that our multilateral climate uh, cooperation is more constructive and successful than it has been in the past. We must be able to implement the Paris Agreement as it was devised. So again, you can see the resolution up on vanuatuicj.com. And please join us as we take uh, this long overdue step in the right direction and, and be on the right side of history. Um, so um, thank you for civil society, for academia, and of course, all the state support that we've been seeing. And uh, back to you, Emily. Thanks very much. Um, 
and a lot more to discuss as this um, initiative um, progresses. Um, and I think, you know, we're hopefully we can have more discussions later in the year when that um, that um, um, vote is, is successful. Um, we have one question in the Q&A. Um, I think there was another question which Nadia has responded to. Thank you. Um, and the question is about financial institutions. And I think this is another really important kind of leverage point. Um, is there um, a likelihood of asset managers, pension funds, asset owners, et cetera, being sued in climate litigations? Um, how do we see that um, uh, progressing or how, how important is that going to be in the future? I'd like to um, ask James if you would be happy to take a stab at that question. Um, thank you. Sure, Emily, I can I can certainly give a start and, and others may want to chime in, but um, I think it's a critical question because we know financial institutions play a central role in financing um, some of the uh, the uh, the clear emissions activities which are contributing to climate change. Um, and I think we are seeing some developments on that front, some very innovative kinds of um, legal action being taken in addition to other kinds of advocacy, of course, which is building public pressure and focusing attention on the responsibility of financial institutions and actually in some cases, the individual directors of financial institutions for the choices they're making. Um, with respect uh, to their investments um, and financial activity. I mean, just, just a couple of examples. Um, there have been, um, I mean, we, we've been involved um, in, uh, in trying to make use of the, um, the law in France that establishes obligations for large corporations to um, uh, ensure, effectively uh, ensure against risks all along their supply chains. Um, and by producing various reports and ultimately being um, held accountable um, for the risks that um, they have not adequately prepared for. And uh, there's an open question at this point as to whether that due diligence procedure applies to banks and other financial institutions and a number of groups, including ours, are trying to persuade the courts that it does. There are, of course, other um, there, there's analogous legislation developing in other European states um, and at the EU level. Uh, and the question of whether financial institutions and to what extent will be covered, uh, I think, is critical to those discussions. There have also been efforts, of course, um, Client Earth and other brave and courageous organizations have taken actions um, in national proceedings um, in the UK and I believe elsewhere that have talked about the, the role of financial institutions. Um, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States um, has been a focal point for some activity um, uh, recently by groups that are alleging that um, banks in the United States um, are not complying with their duties to take account of the risks of climate change in the, in the investments and loans that they're making. Um, and of course, the SEC is um, developing uh, additional rules for public comment shortly that may provide further opportunities. Uh, to look at the responsibility of financial institutions. So those are a few of many examples, but um, I think generally the question is a critical one and it's an area for, uh, for groups like those on this call to uh, explore more fully as we look at every possible avenue to address responsibility for climate change and how to reverse it. Thank you. Thank you very much. And yeah, clearly many levels at which we can have this discussion um, and, and many, many examples to learn from. Um, before we 
coming to, towards the end of the event, before we leave today, I'd like to give the floor to Rebecca Fabrizzi, who is the UK's Small Island Developing States Envoy. She's also Deputy Director for the Americas and Head of the Caribbean and SIDS um, at the Department for Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, um, FCDO. Um, ODI is, is grateful to, for, to FCDO for its support in setting up our Resil um, Resilient Sustainable Islands initiative and its commitment to helping small island developing states access um, finance and achieve sustainable development in a changing climate. Um, Rebecca, we're keen to hear more about from the UK government perspective and your reflections on the event um, and the importance of these discussions for uh, small island developing states. Um, if you could provide some closing remarks. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much, Emily. Thanks for managing my very long job title <laughs> as well. Um, and thanks so much to ODI for the event. I think it was really interesting. You convened such a great range of interesting and really knowledgeable speakers. So um, I feel like I've really learned a lot over the last um, hour and a half. Um, so uh, we place great importance on our work for SIDS. Um, they, small island developing states, have this unique combination of climate and economic vulnerabilities that undermine their resilience and really you know, make everything more difficult. And we've got a track record of advocating for SIDS, um, and that's why we're supporting the RAISI initiative for resilient and sustainable islands. Um, we're working to drive international finance reform, including climate finance, to help SIDS to address their unique vulnerabilities and to support resilient green economies. Um, we're looking forward to the UN SID Summit next year as a really important date in our calendar. And we really want this to be transformational and deliver change, focusing on um, addressing climate and economic risks, which are really existential. And, you know, we're really aware of that. So um, action needs to happen before it becomes too late. Um, we've got three kind of guiding principles for SIDS that they're important to the UK, that they're different from their peers and that they are responsible for achieving change themselves. And um, we've really seen that they're ready to step up. Um, you know, we've um, been, obviously everything is difficult for, for SIDS, but their stories are very, very compelling. Um, and um, we've been engaging with, with Vanuatu and this, um, the pro this process that they've taken on um, as well. Um, our strategic approach is to use policy engagement uh, and programs as well to support sustainable economic diversification and to help improve climate and economic resilience. And we want also to showcase how the rules-based international system can deliver for SIDS um, and help to make you know, those changes and adaptations and so on um, that they need. Um, SIDS are obviously global leaders in climate action. Just been been talking about that and have a vital role in pressuring big emitters to act. Um, the UK is committed to working alongside SIDS and in partnership with them and to, really to deliver on the promises of the Glasgow Climate Pact and that includes action on climate finance and it also includes addressing loss and damage. Um, IPCC has said that global emissions have to halve by 2030 if we're going to get to net zero by the middle of the century um, to maximize our chances of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. Um, we recognize that current impacts of climate change are leading to loss and damage and that these are likely to increase um, in frequency and severity. And we know that more needs to be done at the global level, at regional and local levels too, to help countries and communities um, avert and minimize and address those, those losses and damages. And, 
um, I think it was uh, Joy speaking on behalf of youth, you know, spoke in a very compelling way about the community, um, community impacts. Um, the UK spent £2.4 billion in um, international climate finance from 2016 to 2020 on adaptation, including investment in areas that's relevant to loss and damage. Um, we announced £5 million of funding for the Santiago Network at COP27. Um, and we're looking forward to the selection process for the host of that body concluding this year so that it can start to deliver the technical, technical assistance that's needed. Um, and we um, have also secured one of the 24 seats on the transitional committee set up at COP27 to consider loss and damage funding arrangements, including the dedicated fund. So we're really keen to make sure the work of the committee delivers results for countries on the front line of, of climate change impacts. And that includes SIDS, which is, of course, my key area of interest. So thank you so much again for these panels and discussions that were really very interesting. Um, our international development strategy sets out the UK vision that SIDS are going to be more climate and economically resilient by 2030. And we look forward to working with the international community to drive action on these issues and others ahead of that UN SIDS summit next year, which we hope will be a pivotal occasion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Rebecca. And um, I think you've set out really clearly um, some of the important things that are going to be happening this year. And um, it's it's really been a, a great discussion and I've learned a huge amount in, in, in thinking about the role of um, law and the international um, legal system and um, in, in advancing um, different aspects of the climate change agenda and the importance of, of law as a, a policy instrument um, and the very kind of critical role it can play. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And it sounds um, like there are lots of kind of promising initiatives, including the ICJ initiative led by Vanuatu. So again, you know, great leadership from a, a small island. Um, we are right at the end of the session um, and we have covered a huge amount. I think each one of these conversations could um, have been um, a, you know, a full event. So um, be very happy to, to continue discussing and to, to host um, further events this year. Um, I want to thank very much all of our speakers for being here, joining us from around the world in different time zones. And thank you to everyone who has logged on to watch and engage with this important discussion. Um, and I do hope to see all of you again soon um, and to, to, to keep working on this very important issue. Thank you very much. <laughs>